This evening we turn for the consideration of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Yes, we're coming back to 1 Samuel. And in your pew Bibles, you'll find 1 Samuel 9 on page 231. Let's pray together. Yes, our Father, we would boldly ask. And we would boldly ask that you would make yourself known to us, that you would cause us more clearly to see and to rest in Jesus and to make our petitions from your word. We would boldly ask this. It is not even our place in our sin to come, but we praise you that we can come with bold prayers because we have been clothed with another righteousness, an entire purity, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that we may offer acceptable sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and even petition to you. Teach us, Lord, then, according to your word, to make requests of you, the King, in a way that will give you the glory and that we will ultimately glorify and enjoy you. Hear us, then, we ask, and open your word to us, instruct us, O Spirit of God, give us those things that belong to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. First Samuel 9, I'll read the whole chapter. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, and go look, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come and let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry 
He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. This is the word of God. And a strange and interesting passage it is. Now, maybe some of you who are younger can't relate as much to this, but I think many of us who have had longer experience and walked with God longer will understand when I say that there are things I wish I hadn't asked for. Sure, you're laughing. It sounds like you know what I'm talking about. There are things I have asked for. Career changes and jobs. I can even remember asking the Lord for a particular young lady, and boy, am I glad that I didn't get her. There were things that I asked for that were foolish. There were things I asked for that were not, praise God, his will for me. And there were things that if I had gotten them would have been deeply troubling to my life. What a gracious God that we have who hears foolish 
requests and gives good answers. You'll see that, I trust, as we begin the consideration of Saul's life. Asked for and God's answer. Let's look first at verses 1 through 14 and note that there are warning signs in the life of Saul. He's the sort of guy that you and I might ask for. Now, before we get into these verses a little bit further, we need to think about what's come before. It's probably been some months, hasn't it? Think about 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verses 10 through 20 in particular, we read that Israel wanted, that's not even the right word. No, they demanded a king. They insisted that they had to have a king like the nations. And God told Samuel, his prophet, to go ahead and give in and give them their desire. And that's a kind of a rough passage, isn't it? We ask ourselves, we ought to ask, was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? Well, let's think for a moment about this. Once again, it was not a bad request. It was not inherently wrong at all. In fact, God had even said that when they came into the land, he intended to give them a king, and he gave them the model of the king, what sort of king he should be in Deuteronomy 17. Very explicit. This is the kind of king they were to ask for. But in demanding and asking for a king, Israel demonstrates all kinds of problems with their hearts. They're really not just saying, we want a king. They're saying, we don't want you, Lord, as king anymore. A little bit like the Israelites in the wilderness. Give us a God who can go before us. They wanted a king to go before them. They wanted a king that they would approve. They wanted a king in their timing. They wanted a king who would rule them, and they are rather specific about it. Make them like the nations. And God has no intention of letting his people be like the nations. No intention of letting us become unholy people. Appreciate then that what they are asking, asking for is really self-rule. They have this lust, this craving to be their own kings. Well, their demand indicated, even the, the form of their demand kind of indicates what sort of a king they're asking for. They are selfishly asking for the sort of king who will be selfish. And Samuel warns them. He gives an extended uh, sort of sermon against a king like this, telling all the problems. This is what he's going to do. He's going to do things like, uh, if you go back to chapter 8, these will be the ways of the one who will be king of you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And we can go on from there. Appreciate. This sounds really glorious, right? Notice. Wow. Okay. Chariots. That would be a new thing for Israel. Talk about technology. Uh, look at this. Thousands, fifties, Harvest all these things, perfumers, cooks. Wow, this is serious cultural advance for Israel. It really would be. But hear what's behind it. He is going to take, and he's going to take your sons, and he is going to force them to do this, your daughters. Does this sound like liberty to you? Does this sound like the reign of a gracious king? Understand without, under, without their appreciation and understanding. They are demanding the very sort of king who will make them get down on their knees and cry out for deliverance. 
We read through Judges as we come up to 1 Samuel. That's the background. They get all these oppressors who come against them in God's hot anger against the sins and forgetfulness of his people. And they finally cry out and they're delivered. And that's what they're going to do with Saul. This is not going to be the man after God's own heart. He will not be a man of grace and tenderness. He will not be a man who can really deliver Israel. Now, I think some applications here are pretty obvious, but it would be helpful perhaps to make them anyway. First would be this. It's pretty easy for us, isn't it, to confuse things like position and wealth for power and capability. The assumption is you get this kind of a king, you put him into a position of power, and he will do great things for you. But as you well know, the only person who has all power and authority is Jesus Christ. You can't expect that from any earthly king, let alone Saul. Further, we may easily confuse the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We may think that the kingdoms of this world are the way that God is going to rule his people, and it is not so. Well, at the end of chapter 8, there's almost a sort of dismissal by the Lord that Samuel should obey their voice, make them a king. It's almost as if it might as well be anyone because it's not going to be God's choice. But appreciate, as we come to this now, as we come to chapter 9, Jesus, true king, with all authority and power, has not really left his people. We have a gracious Father who rules his people by the Son, even when they ask for something that is actually wicked. So let's meet the new guy. By the way, he's an awful lot like the old guy. Saul, the future king. Is he fit? Well, think about his qualifications for a moment. Who's his father? Well, his father is Kish. And you notice how much is said about Kish in the beginning. We read all of, of his fathers before him. He's apparently, we read, a man of wealth or power, presence, ability, strength. That's who Kish is. Notice that we don't read that about Saul. But we do read about Saul that he is a man of height. He is head and shoulders above everybody else. And later in 1 Samuel, this will become a key comparison with God's king. He has the advantage, in other words, of looks. And if looks uh, are, are understood rightly here, when it talks about him being handsome, part of what it's saying is that he is appealing because he is a man of height. He is the sort of man the world expects to succeed. There have been plenty of studies done that us short people just don't get paid as much as the tall ones because we expect a, the tall guy is going to be able to do it. There's a weird sort of psychology about this. Well, Saul is the kind of guy you expect to succeed. He's the kind of guy that if you were and I were voting in the flesh, then we would want him in office or maybe in the pulpit, right? This is the guy with a nice face. He can do great things. He can buck trends. He can drain swamps. Give us this man with persona. Give us such a powerful man. This is, it looks like, the best Israel has to offer. And let that be a warning. This is the best Israel has to offer. Head and shoulders above the rest. He's got to be the hope of Israel. This has got to be the key to their future. The man who will subdue their enemies, bring peace, a choice man, a beautiful man. The optics are just right. And the backstory is good. After all, he's the son of Kish. 
And his name even has implications. Some of you might know this already. Does anybody know what Saul's name means? His name means, it's generally understood to mean that asked. Israel asked. They demanded, really, but they asked God to give them a king. And this is the answer. It's got to be this man, Saul. You asked for him. Well, here's the man you asked for. But strikingly, and it is rather striking that the meaning of Shaul can be taken in another way. One Bible dictionary says it can not only mean asked for, it can also mean the one who asks or even begs. Maybe one who takes. Remember what Samuel warned about? He's going to give, give, give. No, he's going to take, take, take. Well, his name is the one who asks. Maybe he doesn't have that much going for him after all. He is perhaps, after all, what Samuel's been warning about. Well, if that sort of warning doesn't scare us a little bit, things get worse. Because he is, after all, notice how the chapter begins. The alarm bells should go off in your head. It's like, fire alarm, get out of the building as fast as you can. Where is he from? You notice? What tribe? Benjamin. That's right. Benjamin. And think about Israel at the end of Judges. Can any good thing come out of Benjamin? Think about what happens. Yes, they're not only the least tribe, but think about the, not just scandal, but the evil, the corruption, the horrific things that happen at the end of Judges. Go home and read it if you like, just to remember how bad it really is. It is horrible. Who wants to be associated with Benjamin? And this is something that even the patriarch Jacob had warned about in his final prophecy in Egypt, Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin, notice this, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Whoa, this guy is from Benjamin. That ought to tell you something right there. Well, throughout the narrative here, Saul is very closely connected to the tribe of Benjamin. You can expect he's going to look a little bit like Benjamin. But there's more. Notice first impressions that matter. His actions. The scene is kind of awkward. The whole presentation of Saul is rather awkward. He's looking for his father's donkeys. That, that might not be so bad, but a donkey is an animal that in the ancient world you would actually expect to be associated with and ridden by a king, and Saul can't find them. Small problem for a guy who is supposed to ride one. Saul, we get further into the story. They look all over the place. They look everywhere. And Saul wants to give up. Well, Saul doesn't even have the idea to go to see the seer. That comes from his servant who isn't even named. His unnamed servant has the bright idea. Moreover, Saul doesn't even have anything to take to Samuel. It's like he's totally unprepared. Maybe he's the sort of cheapskate who forces his dates to pay for dinner, too. He doesn't have the ability to go even to Samuel. Remember, kings are supposed to be shepherds, and one commentator notes this. It's a sort of implicit criticism. Kings shepherd animals. They take care. They make them go the right way, and Saul can't even find them. What kind of a shepherd is this guy going to be? I hope you can hear, as I'm relating this, that 
there should be a growing sense of foreboding. What kind of guy have we really asked for? And I would like to suggest that in many ways, at this time in Israel's history, he is an opposite to the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to seek and save the lost. He doesn't give up. He knows how to appeal to the Father. He comes with the redemption price in his hands, and he actually rescues and shepherds his people. What a striking thing. Saul is the guy everybody wants. They ask for him. And Jesus, we read in Isaiah 53, is the one who is despised and rejected. He comes, John 1 tells us, to his own. His own did not receive him. That is a sort of statement over the whole history of God's covenant people and a commentary on our sinful nature. We have these desires and these affections, and until they become renewed by the Christ that we would reject, then however sound the theology of our family or church may be, we will reject the true king. Israel is ruled by this craving. It's nothing new. This is how they operated all through the wilderness, always wanting to be ruled by particular desires and listen to the judgment that the Psalms tell us God brought in Psalm 106, from which we read earlier. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness. What was it for? Do you remember? It was for meat. That's right. A wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to, te to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. Write that right over the top of Saul's life. They demand, they crave, they insist, they have this wanton desire, give us a king, we want to be like the nations. Somebody's got to go before us because where's our God? Well, we don't even know where Moses is gone. And the Lord sent a wasting disease. It was not wrong for them to want a king. It was right for them to want a king, not this one. Not this way. Half-hearted desires, small desires, C.S. Lewis might put it, that make us too far, far too easily pleased, he says, for earthly advancement. We need a better king. We need a king who comes to us with a cross and rules over death. And we can't have true rule and true delight apart from him. Well, such is the request, but notice the wise providence of our king who continues to rule a perfect God behind the scenes, overturning and even sanctifying such foolish requests with his love. If you read the story now, as we begin to move in the direction of verses 15 through 27, if you read it from a different vantage point, it really has a sort of magical quality, a fairy tale sort of story. Here is a beautiful, young, handsome, rich man walking through the country looking for something. He's looking, as it turns out, for his father's donkeys, but what he finds is something Greater. He finds a kingdom. The Lord himself has been seeking after Saul. Saul, we, we find, much like somebody in a fairy tale perhaps, does not know what's going on. He doesn't understand. But what great things are coming to him? Well, he's busy worrying about his lost property, but the Lord is really at work. His quest ends, we find, there in Zuf. And it's not found animals but a found prophet where things 
end up. This is his true destination. All because God has spoken. Notice what it says there in verse 15. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. That should put us in mind of earlier things that were said about him in this same book. The word of the Lord was scarce in Eli's days, but it comes to Samuel. And as Samuel grows up, shockingly, he sounds an awful lot like what he will become. A man whose word rings true. It never falls to the ground. In fact, notice what these maidens at the gate say. Uh, Let me find it here. Oh, no, I'm sorry. What the servant says. He says, uh, he says to Saul that there is a man who's in the city, a man held in honor. This is verse 6. All that he says comes true. Samuel is still the one to whom the word of the Lord is revealed. Samuel is still that, by that means, the man through whom King Jesus exerts his authority and power. The Lord has uncovered the ear. That's the literal wording of Samuel. He's received this word of an anointed king. God is going to grant this foolish desire. He's going to give them Saul, but he's going to do it in some rather remarkable ways. Remember what we started to think about. Saul is going to be a powerful foil in contrast to the true king. I would even say that in the Old Testament, I think it's helpful for us actually to think about him as a sort of towering antichrist. He comes and he's ultimately opposed to God's true anointed, his son David. This is the man in whom an evil spirit will enter, much like Judas. You remember this at the Lord's Supper? And who will do his utmost to destroy the true king. Jesus grants the request, but he has his own purposes. And begin to notice this. Even in such a wicked man, his saving love comes out. What's he going to do? Verse 16. What is Saul going to do on behalf of the Lord. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. He's going to save his people from their oppressors and enemies. Saul is going to be a wicked, rotten scoundrel of a king. He's the guy they asked for, but he's going to be as bad as all that. He's going to do a lot of harm to God's people. He's even going to advance a sort of anti-Christ agenda. But through it all, The Lord is going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Verse 17, he will also restrain. It's a shocking sort of turn. He it is who will restrain my people. God's people actually need to be restrained. And this is God's purpose for them. Remember Judges 21-25, that final sentence, there is no king in Israel. And what does everyone do? Whatever is right in their own eyes, they must be pulled back. They have to be held back. God is going to to restrain his people and bring them into a holy submission, discipline them to godliness, and overtake their ungodly desires by such an ungodly man. It is striking. It is very notable that what Samuel says when he meets Saul is this. This is verse 20. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel... We initially read this, and our inclination might be to think that this is Samuel saying, all Israel wants you. That's true. But the meaning is actually a little different. It's more like this. Saul, you're going to have the right to do what you please and take what you want. You can have whatever you desire in Israel. This is the way God is going to restrain his people. He 
in all of his malice and evil, is going to be used for God's good purpose. He is really sovereign and really at work, really ruling. Why does he let them have their head? That they might see their real need of a better king to rule their desires, to convert their hearts, to give them eternal hope, and even to cause them to be born again, such a Christ. Strikingly, when David comes along, they're not going to understand that. But you can see that on this side, can't you? Aren't you thankful that the Lord is sovereign, that he overrules our desires, and his sovereignty even extends to getting what we want? What did the people of Israel want at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was the thing they wanted? They said they wanted a king. But when it came to finding the king, and they all had heard that he was the king of the Jews, what did they really want? They wanted the death of the son. They wanted his death. God gave us what our flesh wants. That's a shocking thing, isn't it? It's the worst possible thing we could possibly imagine. The death of the prince of life. But what was the Lord doing in giving us our wicked desire? By his sovereign power, he was ruling to save us by such a king. Isn't that a gracious and a mighty and amazing sort of thing? Our God is all our days. Followed us with goodness and mercy, even though he's often permitted us to wander. And long, even before Saul entered the world, before you and I were born, it was God's eternal purpose to send a son who would overcome our wicked and foolish and sinful choices by an undefeatable mercy and rule us in grace. Well, there's more we could say. There's so much more, in fact. Saul is going to be told everything that's in his mind. Samuel, uh, surprisingly at this point, really finds some humility in Saul. There are even questions. It's kind of surprising. He asks, how can this be possibly true of me? He's beginning to understand something of what Samuel will tell him in chapter 10. But it's, note again, it's the word of the Lord that's going to rule. The word given to Samuel is God's word and decree that will set the king on the right path by which the king must rule and that ultimately God will use to establish and bless and secure and deliver his people. So Saul, by the word of the prophet, becomes the special guest at this sacrificial feast. Note that, by the way, when we come back later in 1 Samuel, you're going to see that sacrifices have an extremely important connection to Saul. But he's sat down at the sacrificial table. He is given a special portion. He's the chief guest at the supper, even as he's going to turn out to be a Judas. He's given all hospitality, all signifying his coming significance in the Lord's hands. Well, I'm going to leave the text on a cliffhanger and make two quick applications. You know, and I've already told you if you didn't, Saul's trajectory is, to say the least, not good. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. Praise God, he doesn't usually give us the bad things that we ask for. 
Have you ever asked, though, and felt a little bit crushed and disappointed? Maybe God isn't hearing me. Why am I not getting the things I'm asking for? Could it be that we do what James warns us of? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your passions. Could it be? brothers and sisters, that our unanswered prayers say more about us sometimes than about our God. Could it be that they challenge our own foolishness and idolatry and actually are the demonstration of God's incredible goodness that he doesn't give? Unless it's for our chastening, he will protect us from our lusts and our selfishness. It's a good question to ask ourselves. I think it would be worth spending some time to consider if God gave me what I asked for, would that actually be a good thing? If the things that you and I regularly pray for, God suddenly tomorrow gave them all, would it destroy us? God's intention is not to give us people less, but to give us more, to give us Christ, to give us a true king, to give us better desires, Which leads us back to the Lord's Prayer. For what should we ask? We should ask for all those things that are in the Word of God, for the greater glory of the Son, for a turning of our desires to His Word. Think for a moment, as we round things up here, of the striking example of a man whose desires are transformed in the New Testament. He, too, wants the death of people associated with the Son. And by the way, his name happens to be Saul. And if you were looking at him from the outside, you would say, by all accounts, a man of tremendous righteousness and preeminent purity. He even says in Galatians 1 that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. Head and shoulders above everybody else. But when he meets the king... When he meets the king and his eyes are really opened, he is no longer the man whose name is asked for, the man everybody wants, who knows what people should be asking for, the man people can respect. His name is transformed into Paul, which means, do you know what it means? It means a little one, something very small, a man who is now suddenly in submission to the king. He goes from being what they asked for to being a man submissive. How beautiful. This is Jesus' purpose for us, to transform us like that. And so consequently, very quickly, a a second application. We ought not to trust in men, but in the king that our God intends to give us, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was it that brought Saul out of Benjamin, chasing after donkeys, into the land of Ephraim? Who was it that pointed him out to Samuel? Who was it that determined, despite all of his problems, to use him? It was Jesus. We don't trust in men, but we do trust Jesus to use those in authority and power and position, even wicked men. Isn't that a good thing? We can ask, and even from wicked men, we can have the good desires of our God for our good. That means we can actually rest. Rest in such a wise providence that knows better what we need and yield 
yield quickly to his higher ways, higher than we understand. Thank God. He doesn't give us all that we ask, but he gives us better than we ask. May God help us to learn to ask and desire such a king as Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do bless you that you are so good and wise, true to your word, that Jesus, our heart's true desire, is freely given to us for our salvation. May we rest in him, look to him, pray, O Lord, in the spirit and in his name, and through him receive all those blessings that you promise to give us in your word. Teach us, O Lord, to be content, to be content with such a beautiful, such a glorious Savior. Hear us, we pray, and help us, for we ask in his name. Amen.